Direction in the Jungles of Life. Welcome. It's another look into the life and message of Elizabeth Elliot, who called us to live to a higher standard each day. To not be satisfied with just a little empty religion in life as a shallow substitute for giving God our best. As our series continues in the coming weeks, we'll hear from family, friends, and others who were influenced by the life and message of Elizabeth Elliot. Hey, it's good to have you with us, whether you're first time or you've joined us many times before. Well, let me tell you what we have planned for today. We have uh, parts three and four of a five-part series called Jungle Diaries. I don't know if you've ever kept a diary, but maybe years later, if you did, you looked back and read that diary and were surprised. You'd forgotten some of the details of life back then. How one life change can lead to another significant change. We'll hear about that and a journey through the jungle. Perhaps the most difficult journey that Elizabeth ever made through the jungle. Joining us, veteran missionary Frank Collinger to talk about how long it took to get from one place to another in Ecuador, back in the old days especially. And uh, we'll continue more of the Ed and Jim show as we hear from Jim Elliott talking about missionary life. But first, it's part three, God's direction is sure. Imagine being an ambassador for Christ. Does that sound like it would be busy, even exciting? Well, sometimes it could mean being an ambassador in a very quiet, peaceful setting, but one where you can't communicate very well with the person you're standing next to. You are loved with an everlasting love. That's what the Bible says. And underneath are the everlasting arms. This is your friend, Elizabeth Elliot, reviewing some old diaries again. Diaries from 1958 when I was living with the Alka Indians of the jungle of eastern Ecuador. I hadn't really looked at these journals for many years, and it is wonderful to see the faithfulness of God, the lessons that he was teaching me when I was living in a very strange place with very strange people to whom I was a freak and a liability. You know, I wouldn't be talking to you today had it not been for the death of my husband Jim and the unimagined sequel. I expected, of course, to be a missionary in the jungle for the rest of my life. If it hadn't been for the death of my husband Jim, I wouldn't have written a book. If I hadn't written a book, I wouldn't have been asked to speak. If I hadn't been doing speaking, I would certainly never have been asked to do a broadcast. I'm humbled and awed and amazed because I really had nothing to do with any of these things. It was just a faithful shepherd leading me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. It was the God who engineered every circumstance. It says in Proverbs 16:4, the Lord works out everything for his own ends. I'll read you some more of the diary of 1958. July 12th, Sunday. It's no accident that I find myself today in a small clearing of South American jungle, cut off from everyone in the world but Valerie and an Alka woman and her two-year-old son. Everyone else apparently had left that day for hunting and fishing and planting. The situation seems a strange one to me, to be unable to communicate intelligently with anyone and yet to know that I am here as an ambassador for Christ when there are millions who have never heard of him, 
and hundreds of missionaries the world over who are so pressed by duties and crowds they hardly know how to carry on. And here it is, a quiet, sunshiny Sunday afternoon, no language study pressing, no way of talking to Gimari. Obviously, the Lord must have something particular to say to me which could not be said in other circumstances. This is undoubtedly true of any situation in life, but there are situations which by their very singularity remind us to seek the lesson. So, Lord, don't let me miss what thou hast. Don't let me dissipate the time. Direct my thoughts. Discipline me as thou desirest. I just read the first nine chapters of Matthew, including Jesus' wilderness experience. I noted that it was after the 40 days that he was hungry and therefore open to temptation. He could not have been tempted had he not been hungry. It was then, in the time of his human weakness and need, that the tempter had power and saw his opportunity. Yet Jesus remained without sin. Two lines from Amy Carmichael follow. O Lord my God, do this for me. Maintain a constant victory. I think of that beautiful little hymn of Fanny Crosby's All the Way My Savior Leads Me. Cheers each winding path I tread, gives me grace for every trial, feeds me with the living bread. It's my hope and my prayer that the reading of bits from my jungle diaries from the late 1950s will not be mere entertainment, but a testimony to the absolute trustworthiness of the Lord. Great is his faithfulness. Someone may be listening right now who feels that he's in an extremely strange and awkward place, a fish out of water. If ever any missionary felt like a fish out of water, it was I when I lived in that little house with no walls with the Alka Indians. Amy Carmichael wrote a beautiful illustration of a sunbird, a little bird singing in the rain. God always cheers our pathway with some unexpected little token of his love and his faithfulness. Let me go on and read from August 21st, 1959, written in Tiwano in the eastern jungle of Ecuador. Today, I suppose, will be a typical one here in Tijuana. Woke shortly before six at the nasal twang of Dewey's singing over in his house. I gave you a little sample of the kind of singing that the Alcas did. Something like this. And they could go up to 70 repetitions before they would sing verse 2. As I stirred up the fire... To cook our oatmeal, a cowo, one of the older women, set out for the peanut chagra. That chagra is the word for plantation. Followed by Mintaka, Anna, Bai, and two dogs. That's one lady, one girl, one little boy, and two dogs. Ipa, who was one of my good friends, sat in her hammock and rolled hammock string on her bare thigh. They made the hammock string out of a kind of uh, fiber that they got from a palm. The diary goes on, after an unsuccessful attempt to contact Shell, that was the missionary aviation base, by radio, 
I went to the river to wash dishes and clothes, returned to find Dewey hacking away at a stump out on the airstrip, and Dayuma trying to corral all the women to weed the section near the papaya trees. Val went to the river to fish for the tiny armored fish, which attached themselves to rocks by means of a sucker mouth. She soon came back with one. Rachel, that's Rachel Saint, is working on a tape with the help of Dawa. Ippa and Dawa helped me for a few minutes to transcribe some singing that I had recorded. Now they are heaving and hauling at the stump that Dewey chopped to push it over the bank. Mintaka has returned from the Chagra, bringing me an offering of peanuts. A shout was raised just as I was going to start cooking lunch. The dogs had chased something into a hole. We all raced out to the forest while Dayuma, Gimari, and the dog took turns digging. Presently, a tail was visible. Could have been a snake for all I knew, but the Indians said it was a lizard. Proved to be one about 18 inches long. A baby, they said, including tail. Also, a huge, smooth-skinned toad was dredged up. Dawa said she'd eat it, but this horrified the rest. Ippa grabbed it, whacked it against a tree, and flung it into the river. Then, more transcribing for me, while Indians continued their weed clearing. Lunch was smoked wild pig, boiled sweet potatoes, roast corn, and coffee. Then I bathed, washed dishes and clothes again, while nearly everyone in the place set off in search of wild honey. Mintaka sits in her hammock and gazes into space. Rachel, Val, and two little boys bathe in the river. I worked some more on the recorded songs, then Rachel came for our daily reading together, Hebrews at present. The crowd returned empty-handed from the honey hunt. The plane came around three, bringing a new radio which floated safely to earth in a large yellow parachute. It's a transistor type, five times as powerful and slightly lighter in weight than our old one. The Alka stood around enthralled as usual while I opened all the stuff, beef, butter, bread, lemons, mayonnaise, a present from Katie. Hm-wah, was their comment. That's one of the more expressive Alka words. It means, it stinks. Hm-wah. Powdered milk, candles, frozen strawberries, cheese, and mail. They immediately grabbed any magazines and zipped through them with appropriate comments, wanted to know from whom each letter came, what its contents were, and whether I had seen the writer, collected all discarded envelopes to write on, etc. Supper was a feast, as usual on airplane days. Then we all worked on the airstrip a while, rolling logs over the bank. Evening brought the Alcas into my house again while I was having reading and prayer with Valerie. Gingotda that's a boy about ten years old, threw himself into my hammock to share the affection that Val was getting. He's about ten, I suppose. The Alcas were eager to hear the tape I'd received from the folks in Franconia, my parents who were vacationing in New Hampshire at that time. It was a joy to hear their voices from the beloved cottage. They're there for the month of August. Now they have retired, and I am left alone with my hammock my candle, my fire, my mail. And I would not forget my little girl, asleep on the bamboo slab beside me, her gold hair shining in the candle glow. What a gift of God, what a God, to deal with us mortals, with me, with such mercy and such judgment. 
August 22nd, Jesus, as a man, met every demand of the Spirit in the sight of angels as well as men. What a record. Jesus met every demand of the Spirit in the sight of angels as well as men. We are satisfied to put on an acceptable show before men, ignoring or rationalizing ourselves out of the demands of the Spirit, quite oblivious, furthermore, to the observing angels. August 26th, I've noticed that Val never plays even with the few toys she has. She's busy from dawn till dark, seldom being here even for meals, on time, that is. She steers little Bai and Tamanta around constantly. These were two little boys who were just about her age, but a whole lot smaller than she was. She being the idea factory, of course. She's found in them two very humble and docile followers. She spent the morning bathing, fishing, cleaning weeds, cutting papaya stalks to make blowguns, helping the girls roll logs off the airstrip, tending her can of tadpoles. This afternoon, she is upriver in the canoe with Kimmel, Sammy, and the other little boys. Kimmel was one of the Alka men who had actually done the killing, which took place in 1956 when my husband Jim was killed. Sammy was Dayuma's son and other little boys. After lunch, Valerie went with Iniwa to dig sweet potatoes on the beach. Well, so much for that diary entry. I'll be reading you some more. Part 3 of Jungle Diaries, God's Direction is Sure. Hey, have you ever wondered what Jim Elliott thought about missionary life? Well, you can hear him talk about it later today. First, though, it's veteran missionary Frank Kohlinger to talk about how long it took sometimes to get from one place to another in Ecuador. There were no roads back in those days from one place to the other. Mission Aviation Fellowship, of course, was a real help. Nate Saint started it, and um, it was a real help to get into these areas. The old-time missionaries had to walk sometimes from mountain areas down, 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 if there was a road or a trail to go into the area where they lived. And uh, that's why I say they sacrificed and um, did a lot of things like that that uh, today you don't have to do. And like I said, the younger generation are a little bit more Oh, how should I put this? They're used to having more things and niceties, and and uh, they can almost get by with it. In fact, even the language, a lot of the Quechua's now, they've all learned Spanish and use it so that even missionaries learning Quechua is not being done anymore. I think I'm the last foreign missionary or even uh, Spanish-speaking Ecuadorian missionary who has learned Quechua in Ecuador. No one learns it anymore. I think ministering to people has to be done in their mother tongue. Yes, in some ways, missionary life has gotten easier. Probably in other ways, it hasn't. That was veteran missionary Frank Kohlinger. Later on, we'll hear from Jim Elliott talking about missionary life as well. But let's hear about uh, Elizabeth's journey through the jungle as we continue to think about missionary life. How did her early walks and hikes with her father prepare her for missionary life. You are loved with an everlasting love. That's what the Bible says. And underneath are the everlasting arms. This is your friend Elizabeth Elliot reading today a little bit more from my jungle diaries. Today I have the story of perhaps the most rigorous 
of jungle journeys that I made. I'm thankful for my father's teaching us to enjoy long walks and sometimes some pretty rigorous hikes and mountain climbs. This entry was written September 10th, 1959, somewhere on the Kurarai. The Kurarai is one of the headwaters of the Amazon. We left Tiwano this morning around 6.30. Val walked the whole way out to Punzunu with no difficulties at all. I should say that Valerie was four years old at this time. I managed to pick up three thorns in my feet, but otherwise the trip was a snap. The Indians had left a papaya in the canoe, which tasted exceedingly delightful after so many weeks with no fresh fruit, and after the heat of the trip. On the way down the Anyangu River, the men saw a boa as big as a tree. But of course I caught nary a glimpse of it as usual. We saw lots of taper and wild pig tracks and puma tracks in one spot, but no game, birds, or fish. It seems incredible that I am actually on the first lap of a journey to the United States. Maybe I'm not going to get there. Val is slow on the trail, not mainly because of pace. She does as well as the average gringo adult, at least. But because she wants to know whose feet those are when she sees tracks, she wants to pick flowers and red toadstools. She points out to me clay for molding pots. She stops to watch fish in the streams. She even looks under the logs for a certain kind I never heard of, which she says the Alcas say live under logs. She wants to know where the lovely flower fragrance is coming from. Coming up river in the canoe, she slept under a tent of lisang leaves, most effective protection from a fierce sun. Right now she has finished a large bowl of chicha, that was a drink made out of manioc, and is chewing on a piece of wild bird and manioc given her by the men. I am seated in my hammock, slung between two trees near the river beach. The BBC is coming through very clearly on my Zenith transistor radio. It gives a very unusual atmosphere here, a thousand miles, seemingly, from nowhere. I don't plan to bring it back with me. Too little is worth listening to. Too much time can be wasted with it. An Indian just brought me a banana leaf bearing a piece of manioc and two small pieces of bird shot on their way down yesterday, smoked last night, cooked just now. Delicious. September 13th, Arahuno. This was the nearest mission station outside of Alca territory. Very thankfully back here in my little house after the most memorable, to say the least, canoe trip out. On Friday morning, September 11th, we left our leaf huts on the beach under a very glowering sky. It was 6.30 a.m. or so, but seemed to be getting darker every minute. In half an hour, the rain was upon us, coming lightly at first and very quickly turning to the chilling, pelting kind of storm we had on our way up the Anyangu with Marge and Mardell. The river began to rise perceptibly, and, of course, poling became more and more laborious. As protection from the rain, the men cut me some lisong leaves again, which had been such a help against the heat of the day before. These are huge leaves that cover a person from head to toe. One leaf will cover you. makes a great raincoat. I made a tent over Val, who was sitting between my knees, and put another leaf on my head. It made a very effective insulation, which provided a surprising degree of heat for the two of us, despite the fact that it leaked considerably. When we reached the deeper section of the river where it narrows between overhanging cliffs, the water was rushing furiously against us. 
the men had had the foresight to stop at the last Pinduk stand, Pinduk is a kind of river reed, and cut heavier poles for the strain against the rising current. They slid the canoe cautiously along the very edge of the river, under the tree boughs, keeping out of the main current, which would have carried us away like an eggshell. They had no paddle, only the poles, which would not have reached bottom. The river kept rising until the men were forced to hack through the brush, which hangs low on the water, in order to haul the canoe through. By this time, Val and I were both very cold, and the roar of the river, plus the stinging, relentless hammer of the rain on our legs, arms, and on the leaf hats, that's in quotation marks, was extremely wearying. I could not sit up straight because of the low branches under which we were passing, and the position, with mine and Val's weight concentrated on my spine, was not a comfortable one. Then my hat, quote-unquote, kept catching on branches and getting swiped off, drenching both of us and causing a frenzy to try to retrieve it while watching the next bow on which I might hook my chin. The men kept leaping in and out of the canoe, now hauling it by means of brute arm strength, now poling, now clawing at the vines which hung from the trees, and thus pulling us forward, now pushing from the stern, always taking great care that the bow did not inch outwards and catch in the raging torrent, thus swinging us all into it. Their leaping in and out rocked the canoe more than usual, and to keep one's balance was something of a trick. It's easy to rub knees and elbows raw in this effort, I learned in my early canoe experiences. Once we had to cross a tributary which shot out from a canyon with terrific force. Gabriel, one of the men that was poling, first edged his way into it, hanging on to vines, and when the vines would no longer reach, threw himself with all his strength across the rest of the distance and just managed to clutch a vine on that side. Hanging on to this, he was able to grasp the bow of the canoe as the other men pushed it forward. Then, at another point, a cataract hurled itself down the rock face of the cliff, threatening to swamp us. We could not go behind it. We dared not get into the current. Somewhat the same tactic was used to solve this one. It was all rather spine-tingling. Finally, the river rose to the level of the tree branches, making it impossible to pass under them. The men dared not attempt another crossing at this point, though we had made a number of exciting ones. The river was rolling and boiling by now. There was no choice but to tie up the canoe and strike out on foot through trailless jungle. Gabriel led the way since he had the lightest cargo and hacked a trail for us. The rain showed no signs of lessening. The forest was very dark. I was grateful for the change of position and found that carrying Val piggyback soon heated me up. She can walk perfectly well on a trail, but is too slow when she has to climb over logs and under branches, etc. So since our progress was discouragingly slow anyhow, I carried her at intervals. None of the men was familiar with the territory, so we made some needless curves following the general pattern of the river. Every so often we came upon a ravine with a swift stream to be crossed. Val crossed up to her neck several times. Or a swamp, or a dense tangle of vines and low branches to be hacked through. But fortunately, it was virgin jungle, which in this rainforest means that it is more open than second growth. I prayed several times for protection from snakes. We came at length to a piata, or overgrown plantation, which was solid brush with plenty of thorns. We were all, of course, barefoot. 
Osvaldo was doing the cutting now, and suddenly he stopped, seeming as if all the spirit had gone out of him. A huge, deadly, fair de lance snake was coiled a few feet from his bare feet. In this region, this snake is usually only three feet long or so. This one was at least six, and fat as a rattlesnake. No one wanted to attempt to kill it. Finally, Osvaldo and my alka spear used my alka spear to pin it to the ground and then beat it with a stick. We examined the fangs, about three-quarters of an inch long. The Lord showed it to me, Osvaldo said. I fervently agreed and thanked the Lord. At last we could see the Quichua houses across the river, and the sun broke through the clouds. It had been three or four hours since we left the canoe. A welcome sight. We shouted, and eventually Dario pulled across and took us to his house. What blessings are these? Fire, roofs, hammocks. Billy, Dario's wife, fed us all a good supper of fish, wild boar, plantains, and manioc. We ate ravenously, our first meal of the day. As we had had nothing to eat for breakfast, the Indians' night lines having caught nothing. Val tore around outside with all the energy of a four-year-old, as if she'd been through nothing at all that day. I was bone-weary and still very cold, so gratefully sank into my hammock by the fire. Val finally came in and crawled into her blanket, spread on two banana leaves beside me. She slept the night through. I was awake a good part of the time, scratching the bites of the night before, sand flies which penetrate even a blanket, and trying to keep warm by a very small fire. The Indians were sleeping on a platform above, so I did not want to make too much smoke. But how often and how sincerely I thank the Lord for the comforts of that Indian house during the night. Only he remembers. We left at 6.30 the next morning after a breakfast of chicha and bananas. This was Val's first time on a really long trail, and she did famously, now whistling as she skipped along, now imitating the birds, now pretending she's an alka, with a blowgun, using a hollow leaf stem about two feet long. Crossing the logs, which serve as bridges, she stopped right in the middle, forcing me to stand trembling and terrified behind her. Look, Mama, yeah, yeah, that's an alka word for a particular fish, or which meant that looks like a nyewimo, a particular species of fish. Those slippery logs are nothing to her bare, light-stepping feet. She wanted me to hold her hand some of the time, but this is difficult when walking single file. I held a stick. She held the other end. I'm your little wagon, Mama, she said. There were few complaints for the whole eight hours and 45 minutes. Twice she said, I would like to sit down, which we did. And once I discovered that her legs were being chafed by the elastic in her sunsuit. Considering how many times she stopped to pick flowers, spot a bird, examine a snail shell, or get herself a new blowgun, I don't think her time was too bad. Fifteen miles, less than nine hours, through pretty rugged terrain at the age of four. Thanks be to God for all his protections of us in those long, forgotten years. Yes, who knows what the Lord is going to use uh, from our past to help us in our future. That was part four of Jungle Diaries. It's a five-part series. It will conclude next time. A Journey Through the Jungle was today's uh, program. Well, as we continue thinking about missionary life, let's hear from Jim Elliott. 
we always take out some time during the week to visit around the Indian homes, not necessarily to visit sick, fo sick folks, although there are always sick folks to visit, but just to get out into the Indian homes and to be their friends, to meet them on their own level, to meet them around their own campfires, to sit on their own bamboo beds, and to chat with them there something about our way of life, our way of thinking, and if possible, a word or two about the Lord Jesus. So it will be with us these next few days while we're together in Shandia. We're looking forward that God would give us a good time, protect us from danger. There is plenty of danger in the Oriente. It is not a thing that we fear. We believe that God has sent us here and that he will protect us in those times when there is danger near. Dangers, like Paul said, of rivers. But we don't feel that we should be moved by, the, by these things, even like Paul said again. None of these things move me. But we believe that the God who sent us here will protect us and will use us here to the glory of his name among these Indian folk way out there in the forest. They're scattered, and we're going to have to do some getting around to get to them. We in our station don't contact very many in a month's time, perhaps maybe 500 Indians, all told. And it's going to take some long walks, some long trips by canoe, some long muddy trail hikes to really finish off uh, the work of evangelizing even the small area that uh, we are uh, operating in down there. Jim Elliott and the Missionary Life. Well, Jim was also a journal keeper, and during his junior year at Wheaton College, wrote uh, some interesting things about his future. Lord, here at Wheaton, we need some affliction to unite us in our purpose, to make us prosper, to scatter us abroad. I pray then, Lord, for... Should I ask for a pharaoh who knows not our Joseph and is antagonistic? Yes, send persecution to me, Lord, that my life might bring forth much fruit. That was from the Journal of Jim Elliot during his junior year in college. Well, as we turn from the journal entries of Jim and Elizabeth, we thank you for coming along on this journey today. Thanks for letting us come into your home, your office, along with you as you took that walk. On behalf of the Elizabeth Alliot Foundation, in cooperation with the Bible Broadcasting Network, let me invite you to check out elizabethelliot.org. More talks, devotionals, videos, and more, elizabethelliot.org. And until next time, may God remind you every day, you're loved with an everlasting love, and underneath are the everlasting arms.